0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Jacob Lederman about his new book, Chasing World-Class Urbanism, Global Policy vs. Everyday Survival in Buenos Aires. This book was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Dr. Lederman is Associate Professor of Sociology at University of Michigan-Flint, and his research interests span urban sociology, development and globalization, and political economy. Welcome, Jacob, to the show. It is such a pleasure to have you here today, and congratulations on this fantastic book.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Um, So can we maybe start this conversation off with getting to know you a bit better? So uh, how did you become a sociologist?
2: Yeah. So that is, um, for me, something of an accident. Um, (laughs) I had uh, studied actually economics as an undergrad in New York City, um, Mm -hmm. and also taken a lot of Spanish and um, Latin American literature courses. Um, You know, like any really thoughtful 21-year-old, when Mm -hmm. I graduated, I sort of somewhat randomly decided uh, that it was a good idea to go teach English in Argentina. Um, I think I vaguely sort of liked the literature I had read in some of my classes from Argentina, and and that was really the crux of the decision. (laughs) Um, And, you know, Buenos Aires in particular, as I think a lot of people would say is a is a fairly complex and fascinating place for sociologists for so many reasons, um, but once there, I think I really found myself without the tools, at least from my economics training, to understand what was happening in the city. Um, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, the city was recovering from an economic crisis. Um, And some of the processes that I was interested in with with no sociological training, um, Mm -hmm. in fact, I had never even taken a sociology class, I think I realized um, were at least somewhat related to sociology as a discipline. Um, And so some of those kinds of issues in terms of class relations in the city and, and kind of comparative aspects of racialization in in Buenos Aires versus where I was coming from in New York City really fascinated me. Um, And once again, without a ton of foresight or or really that much thoughtfulness, I think um, once I got back after teaching English there for a couple of years, um, I decided to enroll in a PhD program. Um, And, you know, the rest is sort of history, though I do now kind of... um, laugh at the fact that I so um, so spontaneously applied to these programs without really any training and, and very little idea, frankly, of, of what the discipline of sociology was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel sort of fortunate that I did because I think in a lot of ways, the discipline did give me a lot of the tools that, that helped me to understand the kinds of processes I was interested in. mm mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's that's really interesting. Um, and you know, the book that's come out of your long engagement with um, with sociology in Buenos Aires is an exploration of urban development and reinvestment in the city in the aftermath of Argentina's two thousand and one to two economic crisis. The book examines how the efforts of the local state in Buenos Aires have been shaped by transnational influence in terms of urban policies, design, and normative images of globality. And how the lives of city dwellers are affected by these efforts. So, could you tell us a little bit about how this particular book was conceived and how uh, your interest in these research questions unfolded?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, one part of that is the economic crisis, which I which I mentioned a bit at the beginning when I mm-hmm. first moved to Buenos Aires in uh, early two thousand five the city was really still recovering from this devastating economic crisis. And I think hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about this a little bit later, but in terms of kind of urban space, there was a whole new level of informality um, that was um, in terms of informal workers that that was um, populated by kind of the former uh, Mm -hmm. local middle class. So people selling on the street uh, as a a way to make ends meet in the aftermath of crisis. Um, And almost immediately after getting to Buenos Aires, um, the New York Times and other large kind of northern newspapers and and other media outlets started publishing these glowing reviews of the city, which was sort of interesting to me even at the time prior to being a sociologist because... Only a couple of years before the global press was writing that, you know, um, Argentina was an economic basket case, um, that the city's, for example, the city's poverty rate was soaring to 50% of the population. Um, And so I you know, it made me think a little bit more about how these processes today, especially in terms of tourism and the kinds of cultural production that come with it, um, how they're shaped by these broader economic patterns. Um, So fast forward a few years, um, well into my PhD program, I think my initial project uh, was to look at gentrification in the historic center of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And during a summer of kind of pre-doctoral, pre-dissertation research, I think in 2012, um, I was in Buenos Aires for a few months and, you know, found myself sort of interested in what was going on in the historic center. But I also started to notice these other changes in the city, which somewhat paradoxically reminded me of what was going on in Michael Bloomberg's New York City, where I was Mm -hmm. coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, a few blocks away in the kind of historic downtown uh, banking district, they were pedestrianizing streets, Um, they were creating bike lanes and bike shares. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found this really fascinating because uh, this was a conservative administration doing these kinds of things. Um, And I think, you know, hopefully I'll have a a little time to talk more about this in a few moments, but I, I think... There was a kind of key insight I gleaned in interviewing a, a pretty high level official in the Office of Urban Development who basically told me that the city's 1990s like redevelopment of the waterfront, which was you know, very homogeneously upper class, very securitized, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, wasn't a successful project because it didn't uh, promote social inclusion. And again, I found this kind of odd knowing this particular minister of urban development who um, was quite conservative and part of a conservative administration. So I think it, it kind of told me something at the time about how global models of urban design and development were kind of circulating around the world and how, at least on the surface, they tended to promote these notions of sustainability and livability equity, etc., cetera. Um, and I won't say too much about this now, but I think that insight made me start digging a little more into who was promoting these kinds of models and how city officials came to support them, to implement them, and, and, and frankly, why they wanted to do so. Um, and what I started to see was that, there was this kind of network of NGOs and experts and futurists and like thought leaders in, the, in sort of urban development that really were traversing the globe um, and certainly were more centered in the global north, um, but were active in cities across Latin America. Uh-huh. Um, and that many of these cities, but particularly in Buenos Aires, were drawing inspiration from these models. Um, and I think crucially for me, um, they were drawing inspiration from models that appeared to be very invested in a kind of equity priority. So many uh-huh. of the things that um those of us who live in cities, at least in North America, are probably familiar with, um, the, the kind of notion of sustainability and livability. Um, and so I sort of started to wonder how those kinds of, um, discourses did indeed, or in fact, didn't promote equity. And what I started to find was that, um, when you dug a little deeper, a lot of those paradigms actually promoted new forms of, of exclusion, um, and a very sort of, um, upper class idea of what, uh, the urban core should be. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, as you were speaking, uh, I was even more curious to know a little bit about the methods that you use to do your research.
2: Yeah. Um, so those changed also as this project evolved and they're really, I would say, you know, relative to a lot of my friends and colleagues who I think Mm -hmm. have, much more straightforward, say, ethnographies. Mm-hmm. Um, I used a variety of methods, and I wouldn't really call myself an ethnographer, though there are some ethnographic moments and a kind of ethnographic or a chapter that's much more ethnographic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the bulk of my research consisted of about 49 um, qualitative interviews, um, largely with folks like city officials. So I was very fortunate in this regard. And I think it really helped me to be able to do this project. And um, that was because a friend of mine who I met through a friend in Buenos Aires worked Mm -hmm. for the party that ran the city. Um, And much to my surprise, sort of high level urban officials for whatever reason were very open to meeting with me. Um, something I found curious and I, I think, um, scholars, you know, scholars from the global North, especially those working in the global South, uh, um, I think often find this where your local colleagues can't get those kinds of meetings. Um, and for whatever reason, local officials, um, found themselves more interested or more open to speaking to me about these issues. So mm-hmm. that I felt like was a stroke of luck. And it's one of the things I think about in terms of methodology, because it, it was really crucial to understanding these stories mm-hmm. um, of the kind of global travels of urban policy models um, to be able to interview kind of uh, people or, or Um, hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that was a big part of my research. But as the research progressed, I found all of these connections between um, local officials and mostly northern NGOs and think tanks, Mm -hmm. um, climate philanthropies, uh, organizations like C40, or um, the Institute for Transportation Development Policy. Um, and these are organizations that are working all over the world. Um, and so I did get a chance to interview um, a number of those those individuals working there as well. Um, and then finally, I did a lot of work with kind of local um, community members, local shopkeepers. So I, I, I began my interest, as I mentioned, in the historic center um, and... I was sort of curious uh, about how the commercial character of some of the major streets in the historic center were changing um, and how, what the experience of informal vendors who were sort of the least privileged uh, uh, agents of commerce in the neighborhood, um, how they experienced those changes. Um, so I would say the rest of my interviews were with um, people like that, as well as kind of just more ethnographic, like a, attending community meetings, talking to people informally after after those, um, there was a lot of pushback on the local state's efforts in some of these neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. um, uh, attending some of those community meetings was also really crucial for thinking about the kind of relationship between these global paradigms on the one hand and, and how they impact everyday residents on the other.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's really beautifully put. And I'm um, Um, I thought that the way you integrated your, you know, the analysis of policy documents, as well as the interviews with some of the ethnographic components was actually, it it provided a really nice balance um, and took us around different sites of inquiry, you know, and I thought that was really cool. Um, So diving straight into the book now. In the first part of the book, you show how and why Buenos Aires became a tourist and travel destination right after the economic devastation in 2001 to 2. So can you tell us a little bit about the mechanisms through which uh, this unfolded the making of Buenos Aires as a tourist dest- destination? And who were the important political actors that were involved in this transformation?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so this is kind of the key way I, I try to frame um, the kind of history of the book is through this kind of break that happens after the economic crisis of 2001 and 2002 and sort of how this ushers in this, this more entrepreneurial approach to local culture and tourism and, and in turn urban development. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found was that, um, so Buenos Aires during the 1990s, to kind of zoom out into this more macroeconomic perspective, um, was very much part of the Washington consensus at the time. Um, they had pegged the peso, the local currency, to the US dollar at one to one, which on the one hand, many middle class Argentines um, appreciated given the history of inflation in Argentina. So this basically ended inflation from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also made Argentina extremely expensive. Um, That's a kind of a different story perhaps of how it decimated local industries. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically overnight following the economic crisis, um, federal officials devalued the currency and Buenos Aires went from being one of the most expensive cities in the world really to one of the cheapest. And so this is where you start with this kind of global media buzz um, around Buenos Aires is this place that is, I think, at once familiar to Northern Hemisphere travelers, where a lot of these media publications were emanating from. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a whole set of interesting questions there, the way the cities modernity is kind of racialized by those publications, right? Um, mm-hmm. as, as many people know, Buenos Aires is also often framed as this uh, sort of European outpost in Latin America, um, mostly due to the large amount of European immigration that took place in the early part of the 20th century, but also because of the kinds of architectural idioms that characterize the city center. Um mm-hmm. So we saw this expansion, this very rapid expansion of tourism in the city. Um, And I think for a city that was really reeling from unemployment um, and poverty, this was a kind of lifeline for local officials. Um, And so some of those actors um, were officials who on the one hand saw tourism as one of the few bright spots following Mm -hmm. the economic crisis. Um, And I'll just say, and and perhaps we'll get to this a little later, I think some of these, during the period uh, of the early 2000s, this was a kind of leftist progressive um, mayor and city government. And I think they really grappled with this sort of deeply, um, this kind of tension between commodifying the city's culture and kind of going all in on tourism and, and culture, uh, in a way that, um, was very commercializing of, of local cultural identity, um, Mm -hmm. and sort of how to balance that with the needs of everyday residents. So sort of the progressive government, the way that it sort of started to work that out is by coming up with this vision of sort of, cultural identity and cultural tourism um, that was much more about maybe exchange than simply the commodification of of urban culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of what I do in chapter two and three of the book is look at that tightrope act and sort of how that sets the city up for a much more entrepreneurial and frankly, much more typical use of culture in urban development. So they, the, the sort of leftist city government is um, reinvesting in the historic center, but thinking about how that impacts lower income populations there, how they can promote cross-cultural exchange. So this sort of more cosmopolitan vision of cultural tourism. And despite perhaps good intentions, um, the ground has really been laid for the next mayor, Mauricio Macri, who comes in and I think is much less um, ambivalent about that kind of project.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is, this is really interesting and it provides like, I think the perfect grounds for me to ask my next question, which is, uh, you know, I really enjoyed your emphasis on the role of political orientations in modifying uh, and shaping the intentions of multiple city administrations, but like more specifically, I really like your emphasis on the local political orientation. Um, I was hoping you could walk us through a few examples of the kinds of frictions and contradictions that were generated in the process of transforming Aires.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that comes to mind just as like a sort of first stab at this, um, this wasn't something I was very aware of while I was on the ground, but there was, um, An Afro-Argentine cultural center that in, I believe, like 2010 or 11, the city government, the conservative city government had given a cultural space in the historic center. Um, And apparently, at least according to media reports at the time, um, the group who who had been given this space wasn't using it as a kind of space for entertaining uh, outsiders. They were using it for their own kinds of political projects and processes and forms of uh, cultural identity. And in a kind of telling interview, the minister, the city's minister of tourism, said that he regretted giving them this space because he thought they were going to do something that would attract the whole city and outsiders, tourists, and instead they were just using it for themselves. I think this was a kind of interesting anecdote for me um, because it sort of spoke to this tension, like on the one hand, promoting local forms of cultural identity, um, which had been a hallmark of, of both of these administrations that I just mentioned. But at the same time, seeking ways to commodify that cultural identity. And I think um, one thing that I was very interested in is sort of how those two administrations managed this very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I came up with uh, the the way I sort of defined that was that the prior administration had this more sort of cosmopolitan vision of the city, which still sought to promote tourism and economic development, but it was much more about cultural exchange um, and um, I think one of the reasons why I, I like this chapter, which is uh, chapter three of the book, is that I do think there's a tendency among among many of us, including myself, I think, to see everything through this paradigm of the neoliberal entrepreneurial city. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, I actually do think the Makri government um, that came to office later very much saw the city in those terms. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I thought was kind of interesting was this sort of older form of cosmopolitanism that had existed in the city, that, you know, cultural tourism wasn't completely new. um, Mm -hmm. And cultural exchange, of course, wasn't completely new. And so I found it kind of interesting how this progressive administration sought to borrow from these kinds of older idioms. But I also thought it was interesting because it suggests the limits to that approach. Um, as time went on, that administration, the the progressive administration, um, mm-hmm. increasingly had to contend with processes of commodification if they wanted to see increased economic development and increased tourism. And so mm-hmm. um, while in the first years of their administration they were part of social movements, that were dedicated to protecting uh, intellectual property rights, for example, of cultural producers in Latin America, um, that were very critical of northern development institutions and um, the global kind of culture industry. Um, And as time went on, I think they abandoned this for a slightly more pragmatic orientation towards these kinds of processes. And so I think one of the things that, It shows is that at least within the jurisdiction of of cities, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to contend with these global forces. So when the possibility of increased revenue coming into the city through tourism presents itself, I think in the end, many city officials um, felt quite um, compelled to take advantage of that.
0: Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: A lot of the key concerns that you you walk us through in the book. Um, So your deep dive into the historic neighborhood of uh, San Telmo uh, reveals how the concept of gentrification might work a bit differently in non-Western contexts, even if it is class-based exclusion that is the end result. So I wanted to uh, invite you to tell us a little bit about the processes of reinvestment and redevelopment in San Telmo. um, And how they provoke us to rethink what Western scholarship often glosses over as uh, gentrification.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's an area that I remain really interested in and sort of in some ways stumbled upon. And I should say, on the one hand, I started this project, um, thinking about gentrification. That Mm -hmm. was also probably a result in part of my dissertation advisor who, um, has written quite a bit about that. Um, and in some ways, when writing the book years later, after doing the research, um, I was very hesitant to engage this topic. Uh, for those who do work on kind of gentrification studies, there's just so much literature out there. Um, right. And some of sometimes for me at least, those debates can seem a little arcane, um, mm-hmm. you know, people fighting <laughs> over very narrow, conceptual differences for decades, basically. Um, And so I was always a little bit worried about wading too deeply into this topic. But um, I settled on, I mean, I do think there's something here that is very interesting. And I have to say, I I borrowed a bit from Asher Gertner, Mm -hmm. who has done work in Delhi um, and elsewhere. And um, in kind of asking how class relations shape how we frame um gentrification and so Mm -hmm. what i found in the historic center of buenos aires for example was that there was reinvestment and there certainly were new people moving in a lot of those new people were tourists um, and students from abroad Mm -hmm. um and fewer of them were the kind of sort of sweat equity middle class um i guess cappuccino drinkers that are the lure of uh the the sort of disciplinary take on gentrification over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it did sort of raise this question of like how we think about class relations in cities like Buenos Aires. And I do think there's application to other cities in the global South. Um, Mm -hmm. so in San Telmo, the, the historic, one of the historic neighborhoods, but the sort of heart of the historic center of Buenos Aires, you see much more commercial gentrification than residential. So, um, You know, stores are clearly changing very rapidly, and residents are changing too. But you see far fewer wealthy um, residents of Buenos Aires moving from the sort of posh neighborhoods of the city into the housing. The former housing of the poor, um, and I think that's a key difference when you think about gentrification in kind of the North Atlantic context, um, and so it raises a host of questions about like comparative thinking, comparatively about processes of social stigma, about mm-hmm. class relations, etc. Um, and so, again, borrowing from Gertner a bit, um, one of the things he talks about is if um, accumulation by Dispossession is a more apt term for what goes on in some of these cities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of liked that. So I I believe that's a a term coined by the geographer David Harvey Mm -hmm. to think about processes of expropriation um, Mm -hmm. that are class-based. And usually this involves some level of force. So in thinking about San Telmo, the kind of consumer residential choice paradigm that often characterizes some cities in the North Atlantic where rents are driven up wealthy people from other parts of the city move in and displace lower income residents Mm -hmm. was there in a very minor way, um, at least in my research. Um, and, and what we did see a lot of, for example, is, um, So like hotels that had been converted into single room occupancy. So with shared bathrooms and kitchens. So these are large buildings in the historic center that for decades had housed hundreds, often, sometimes two, 300 individuals um, Mm -hmm. being completely uh, dismantled and um, given to developers for usually hotel development. And the key distinction here, and I can see some people perhaps saying, like, this isn't that much of a distinction. But but I found it useful in, in my own work. I think the key distinction here is that those buildings often were slated to become hotels oriented toward tourism uh-huh. um, versus that kind of slow burn consumer residential choice pattern where higher income local residents are moving into the housing of the poor. Um, So I I found that to be an interesting distinction. And I'll just say one last thing, kind of going back to this um, idea of doing a better job historicizing some of the things that we think of as neoliberal urbanism. Um, And to be clear, I'm not one of those people who shies away from using that word. I think it's important. (laughs) But I will just say, um, I think looking at Santomo Doing some archival research, one of the things I found was that this was a neighborhood that had been undergoing processes of change and kind of uh, ushering in more cosmopolitan residents, artists, and bohemians, etc. Since the early 70s, and it had always been this very niche kind of movement, as I said, of, of higher income residents to the neighborhood, um, and it raised some questions for me because certainly in 1970. 1970 or 71, when I was finding these newspaper clippings mm-hmm. about things that could really only be described as as looking like gentrification, um, there was really no post-industrial kind of structure in Buenos Aires for that, right? This clearly wasn't part of the sort of neoliberal turn in urban governance that mm. we often think about entailing and ushering in gentrification. Um, right. So I guess it made me question just sort of more broadly how we historicize these processes and whether that helps us draw different kinds of distinctions.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That was uh, really well put. Um, So you've already spoken about this a little bit, but in chapters four and five, you show how urban policy discourses that seemingly privilege non-market values of sustainability, inclusion and culture they end up producing exclusionary outcomes. So in chapter four, you take the case of bus rapid transit. And in chapter five, you consider the language of creativity in branding of Buenos Aires. Could you walk us through how these exclusionary outcomes are achieved, um, perhaps with an example or two?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so I'll just say this is really, um, if I can... If, if I can say this, my, my favorite part of the book, if that's right. the right term, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think this was the part of the book that was most unexpected for me as I was mm-hmm. doing my field work. Um, and really when I got to interview, especially people from out from international NGOs, there was a lot of, um, clicking that happened for me in terms of like things came together and made a lot more sense in terms of how yeah. the city was being redeveloped. I also think these chapters, I hope, um, shed light on processes in other cities that will be useful to other urbanists, particularly those looking at cities in the global south. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so chapter, um, chapter four is looking at bus rapid transit and the transformation of the old kind of banking district and, and Unfortunately, this is different than the historic center, which is always a little confusing, but, um, and these are projects that all of us would be familiar with, pedestrianization, new bike shares, bike lanes, that kind of thing, and and this kind of discourse of not just urban livability and sustainability, which was certainly there, but also urban vibrance and diversity. So I found that to be interesting. Also, the city government promoted this space through a lot of different ways, which which I probably don't have time to get into now, as a place of um, social diversity and um, Mm -hmm. vibrancy. And so, you know, again, I thought this was interesting for a city government that most critics accuse of defunding public housing, um, of dismantling the urban welfare state in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... It was interesting to think about how they were framing these through these kinds of consensual discourses around livability, sustainability, diversity, and creativity. Um, and so there's a few different things going on in Chapter 4. Um, one of my questions is, with regard to BRT, where are these models coming from? And are they actually hewing closely to any kind of technical specifications? Or is this more about having something called BRT? So, one of the things I found is that city officials often uh, invoked Bogota as a model for their BRT. Um, And yet, when I talked to urban officials, um, none of the bells and whistles that were evident in the Bogota model existed in Buenos Aires. And in fact, mm-hmm. Buenos Aires' BRT was really just dedicated bus lanes without any of the upgrade that had made BRT so successful in a place mm-hmm. like Bogota. And so I found this in itself kind of interesting um, this process of kind of legitimate legitimization so in order to adopt this policy which it turned out was being promoted by an international um, ngo sustainability Mm -hmm. ngo and often funded through agencies like the world bank um, local officials didn't really want to invoke places like new york even though that's where this ngo was located right (laughs) they Mm -hmm. wanted to invoke regional examples for uh, you know all of the reasons that are probably obvious they didn't want to be seen as copying a city that I think most local residents would have thought to be um, not really comparable with Buenos Mm -hmm. Aires. Um, And so um, that was one of the key findings, this idea of um, which models are being selected. Um, But I also found that um, while a lot of these NGOs, global NGOs are kind of seeding expertise in the global South. So for example, if you uh, look at this particular NGO that promotes bus rapid transit, of course, Mm -hmm. they are promoting um, cities all over the world as models, particularly cities in the global South. But Mm -hmm. as I started to dig deeper into the kinds of urban networks that Buenos Aires was a part of, um, I often found that these organizations were headquartered in uh, in the global North. And so it raised questions for me as to whether, um, these organizations were kind of seeding expertise in the global South in order to Mm -hmm. legitimate, um, models that they were promoting. Um, and I don't mean that to sound conspiratorial or cynical. I think, um, I think it speaks to, uh, a certain way in which, um, certain way in which development models have shifted from very top-down paradigms in in previous generations and how Mm -hmm. a more horizontal exchange of knowledge is lauded today. Um, But in fact, at least in this case, um, is something that I think we need to question more deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, the result, for example, just to use BRT as one example, is that um, ITDP, the international organization based in New York that focuses Mm -hmm. on sustainability, um, was lauding uh, Buenos Aires and awarded it the organization's yearly transportation prize, I believe in 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is actually if in the world of these kind of urban development circuits is actually a quite notable prize to be awarded. But then the very next year when ITDP put together a list of all BRT systems, it Mm -hmm. rated Buenos Aires among the lowest. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what this showed me was that this wasn't really about the technical details and policies. This was about, as the title of the book suggests, chasing world-class urbanism. So Mm -hmm. trying to create a kind of image that coheres to um, very dominant urban discourses, what I call a discourse community, kind of at the global level that prizes um, Mm -hmm. the language of sustainability and livability, but isn't very interested, for example, if Buenos Aires actually reduced aggregate CO2 levels, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think what I found was that, and, and this taking this back to the kind of global versus local question, is that the city government found these models appealing because they could do all of these things in the name of urban downtown reinvestment. Uh, mm-hmm. without saying so, right? So they could pedestrianize the downtown banking district and attempt through various methods to create a more kind of upscale commercial character to that area, to mm-hmm. incentivize cultural activities that middle-class people would be interested in mm-hmm. versus the prior users of that space who had been informal vendors, um, people picking through the trash, for example. Um, so by framing this as a sustainable, livable development that was awarded prizes and lauded by international organizations the world over, mm-hmm. they could achieve a high level of legitimacy while in reality um, kind of changing the class character of these areas. and so. I don't think I'm quite so cynical as to say sustainability and livability are exactly um, sort of false discourses, but I mm. think they are discourses that um, could use more critical scrutiny in particular local contexts. Um, let me say, because you asked a, a, about creativity, which is the next chapter, and I'll, I'll try yeah. to be kind of brief here. Um but one thing I found, which I think a lot of urbanists can relate to, is that a lot of these discourses were kind of used interchangeably, right? So, mm. um, you know, Buenos Aires's local officials were, were often invoking sustainability, livability, creativity, inclusion, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wanted to look into creativity in particular a little more. Um, and the city had created basically these thematic districts in the south of the city, which had always been the poorest part of Buenos Aires. Um, And again, this kind of gets to this nexus of um, local political histories and global models. Um, So a conservative city government talking about social inclusion and exclusion seemed to me to be something novel, the degree of importance that they gave it. And their solution was to create what they called creative districts, uh, which basically provided tax incentives for cultural producers and other tech companies to move into disinvested areas of the city. And I guess to be very kind of brief about it, what I found was that um, the measure of success for these projects was raising urban land values. Um, And so the city was able to see kind of bringing Southern land values up to that of the North of the city or closer to that as a way to foster social inclusion. Um, And so once again, I think um, a policy that was framed as a kind of industrial or sectoral policy. So there were people in the local legislature who were saying like, if we really want to incentivize technology and cultural producers, we need a serious public policy. And the city government kind of rejected that. And I think part of why they rejected that is because the discourse of creativity and the kinds of amenities that new development would bring were actually more important than, for example, um, reshaping uh, reshaping industry or, uh, providing new forms of employment or reshaping labor markets, um, these kinds of sectoral policy heavy um, goals that they weren't really that interested in. And and the result was that um, these neighborhoods gained urban amenities and gained higher income residents. Um, And the sort of discourse of creativity Uh, did very little to address the kinds of industrial goals that they were said to have had.
1: So I really loved the final empirical chapter. In fact, I think that was my favorite in the book. (laughs) And it, you know, as it makes us think beyond the official realm into how citizens respond to these changes and how they adapt to urban transformation. So could you speak a little bit about the kinds of strategies people used or are using, particularly like the vulnerable communities to survive in Buenos Aires? Um, Or in other words, uh, in your own words, really, um, how do people make use of everyday culture to survive in a city of culture? And how does this impact social transformation?
2: Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, So a lot of people have told me that that chapter was the most interesting or (laughs) easiest. And it does happen to be the chapter that is more ethnographic. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I very much appreciate that. Um, I think one of the things, so this chapter is about going back to the historic center, the neighborhood of San Telmo, and thinking about this large Sunday street fair that brings throngs of tourists, um, mostly international, but also some local residents to the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, and has long been a space of competing priorities between shop owners, informal vendors, etc. I think one of the kind of interventions I wanted to make here, thinking about the voluminous studies on informality in cities of the global South, was to call into question some of the stark dichotomies that many of us, including myself, often use to understand these situations. So Mm -hmm. informal versus formal, privileged versus not so privileged. Um, and so I was interesting, interested in how local residents, some of them sort of what are called in Argentina or what, what were called new poor, formerly middle-class people who lost their careers as a result of the economic crisis and took up mm-hmm. selling goods in the historic center. Um, often lower income uh, immigrants from neighboring countries who often sold the goods with the least added value um, so mass-produced mm-hmm. goods, for example, um, and so I was kind of interested in these different strategies of survival and thinking a little more deeply about how um, how these individuals and social classes, frankly, um, deploy certain kinds of advantage in order to generate to, to be able to make ends meet, so to be able to have the most prized parts of the street. One thing I noticed when I started doing this research is that um, those individuals furthest from the center of the fair, where most of the international tourism is, were these um, lower income vendors of immigrants from neighboring countries. And like I said, they were selling things that generated the least added value. So, mass produced keychains, for example, that they would sell to tourists for a few pesos. As you got closer to the fair, um, you know, to be to be very frank about it, um, people became the the vendors, that is, uh, became whiter, lighter in appearance. Um, They tended to be locals as opposed to um, immigrants. And I think many of them saw themselves as very much in opposition to the local state who wanted to uh, displace all of them. Mm. But at the same time, I was sort of curious about how in this city that is doing so much to incentivize culture, um, Mm. that calls itself the cultural capital of Latin America, Mm. how did these individuals use local culture to generate advantage, to make ends meet? And part of what I found is, you know, some of these classic, um, themes in economic sociology. So for example, artists, um, making hand produced, uh, objects obviously were seen as more valuable, but also, um, thinking about sort of this aura, uh, that is produced uh, by certain cultural producers. So mm. for example, Um, thinking about their modes of self-presentation with international tourists, thinking about their language skills with international tourists. And Mm -hmm. in the end, kind of circling back to this idea that these are very classed experiences, even in the shadow of the local state that wants to displace all of them. So of course, you know, there are most of these vendors are disadvantaged in terms of the legal structure of the city, which sees them as interlopers. Um, And yet we still see how, how their social class backgrounds um, really informs or um, mitigates, excuse me, mediates their ability to be on certain parts of the street. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in the end, I think I kind of shy away from, from, Perhaps ideas that would look at certain um, cultural production and see it as this like heroic vernacular versus crash commercialization, and mm-hmm. I think my way of thinking about this was more to um, was more situational to to try to think about how all of these individuals through various forms of uh, self presentation are appealing to different legitimizing discourses at different moments, um, Mm -hmm. and, and all shaped by the actions of the state, um, and their ability to mobilize class privilege in order to remain on the street. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, on that note, I would like to shift gears a little bit and, um, ask you, what are you working on now and what can we expect to read from you in the near future?
2: Yeah, so I think, I i guess never say never, but I am trying to move on from Argentina. Uh, I live in the Midwest now in Detroit, and, you know, Argentina is a pretty long ways away. Um, right. And it also, as I think many people feel, it feels like a break to have right. her in the book. Um, I have two projects that are sort of related that I am interested in pursuing here in Michigan, both in Detroit and in Flint. Um, both In both of those cities, local officials are attempting to tear down uh, urban highways that were built as part of urban renewal, both of which that is in Flint and Detroit um, tore through predominantly black neighborhoods um, and really you know, destroyed those communities in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and so as in other parts of the country, there are efforts now to tear out those highways and rebuild the urban grid. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for me, it raises a lot of questions about what we mean by urban justice and racial justice and how we think about these projects, uh, mm-hmm. just to sort of tease one um, one aspect of this is at least in the case of Detroit, the highway in question is, is really next to some of the most gentrified neighborhoods of the city and quite mm-hmm. close to downtown. And so I think there's a kind of tension between on the one hand, wanting to use the physical rebuilding of the urban grid to kind of right this, um, this historic wrong um, and to think of it as a racial justice project. Um, and on the other side of that, to think how that project could very well further entrench um, aspects of racialized apartheid in the city. Um, and so that's that's one thing I'm working on. and then somewhat related because all of these processes very much um, entail community engagement um, from, city officials usually led by city officials and consultants. um, I've been working on a project that sort of looks at the history of this concept of placemaking, specifically in Detroit and how um, historically that term has been used and how today it's being used to reshape uh, particular neighborhoods of the city um, and sort of thinking about um, the the multiple understandings that different stakeholders have about that term and how, at least in the contemporary period, it is often used to spur new processes of, of reinvestment in, in disinvested neighborhoods.
1: Wow. That all sounds really interesting. And, you know, like all the best with, with this work, especially coming, I guess, coming out of the pandemic, um, provisionally at least Um, I'm sure this is a lot on your plate and, this is uh, this all sounds really interesting. I wanted to thank you for taking time out to to chat with me today about your fantastic new book. Um, it's really such an achievement, so big congratulations again, and hope you're basking in the in the warmth of the achievements that the book is bound to garner.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun, um, and it's been it's been great talking. And your questions have actually um, really helped me also kind of. Um, rethink some of these article uh, arguments now a year out from publishing the book.
1: Well, that, that makes me really happy. So yeah, take care and uh, stay safe.